0: Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was in a 32-year relationship with my ex. We were married for 30 years, and we have an amazing 25-year-old daughter who's doing fantastic. And tonight, I have another wonderful guest, Dr. Thomas Lucking, who is working with neurodiverse couples and has been doing it for quite some time. And welcome, Dr. Thomas, to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. We're thrilled to have you here tonight.
1: Thank you, Mona. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I look forward to our conversation today.
0: Me too, me too. I always like to ask our guests, How they got started working with neurodiverse couples, because it's definitely a specialty area for counselors. So, can you share with our listeners what brought you into the world of neurodiversity?
1: Sure, sure. You know, I worked in technology for a while and, uh, you know, for some big companies like Microsoft, Texas Instruments, and some others. Uh, My original degree was in computer science. And, um, I spent a fair amount of time with people who are very technical and can work on computer code for hours and hours a day. And lo and behold, I reached a point in my career where I said, you know, instead of solving computer problems, I want to solve human problems. I love it. So yeah, I shifted, you know, and, and it was a big career change, but I, uh, went ahead and, had to get re-educated and got my phd in psychology and and then i started my practice and uh, uh a friend helped me realize the prevalence of neurodiversity and and autism right here in in silicon valley in the tech community that i was so familiar with mm-hmm. so i said you know this is a great fit you know this is a really great fit so Ever since then, you know, it's it's been over over a decade now. I've I've been working in in counseling and therapy in and, and this space of uh, neurodiversity, and it's been a really good fit because it's a community I'm quite familiar with, and and there actually is what we might call a, a, a cluster of neurodiversity in certain parts of the country. And they tend to align with different types of employment opportunities. So things like finance and, and medicine sometimes and, and certainly technology. Um, and, and in Silicon Valley, it is quite prevalent. So here I was with my background and it turned out to be a great fit and, and I really love it.
0: Oh, that's fabulous. That is so fabulous. You know. Um, when my ex and I found out we were a neurodiverse couple, that was 2017. And it was so difficult to find somebody that could provide counseling for us. And so five years later, I see more and more therapists and counselors and even coaches who are doing work with neurodiverse couples, but still there's not enough. So I really, really love that you're doing this work in an area where there's really a tremendous need. And, you know, I've been doing support groups, free support groups for the neurotypical partners primarily. And there's some recurring themes that I hear over and over again. And I really, I say periodically, I wish I had that magic wand where I could help take care of all the challenges neurodiverse couples are having. That one doesn't exist. So instead, I'm reaching out to all the folks that I can find who are doing work with neurodiverse couples. And one of the really challenging issues is when the neurodiverse couple knows they're neurodiverse, they have children and they don't, they're not prepared for the challenges for the autistic partner when children come into the relationship. So that's an area where we could use a little bit of your insight and experience. What would you share with a neurodiverse couple who's struggling in the area of co-parenting, especially with young kids? What would be some of the strategies or advice that you would share with them?
1: Sure. Parenting, big, big topic. Um, there's, there's parenting alone, right? Is, is, it's a joy. It's, it's a wonderful experience to be a parent, but at the same time, it's a stressor. There's a lot of needs, especially with uh, younger children, different kinds of needs as they get older, but uh, it is quite uh, demanding, it's quite demanding. Mm-hmm. And in terms of neurodiverse couples who are parenting, really the first step is to recognize your your strengths and, and your challenges.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and probably one of the biggest things that first comes to mind when you have uh, children is your sensory uh, abilities, right? So screaming kids, uh, mm-hmm. killing things, um, behavioral issues, you know, all those types of things, you know, those are all, they can be quite demanding um, and intrusive when it comes to someone with very sensitive sensory issues. So that's going to be very important to understand the uh, if someone's on the autistic spectrum, what their capacity is to, to manage sensory input. Um, I, do, I do see that a lot where couples don't recognize their differences and they just move ahead assuming that, you know, my partner's just got to step up when the other one is maybe reaching their limit and is just not set up to deal with that. Um, on the other hand, y- you have things like uh, special interests in, in the world, in the autistic community, which can be a wonderful thing you know kids can mm-hmm. play the same thing for hours and hours on it right. and and right. why not leverage that you know i i've had uh i remember a couple i had the the husband was very much into trains
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and oh could would play with uh, his son for just hours and hours and they were both <laughs> super into trains and watch videos and, and get models and so it was great you know but then when you get outside of those comfort zones if you will um, mm-hmm. maybe it's going to be a bit tougher. Um, so really having that understanding ahead of time of you know what the strengths are, what the weaknesses are. And all of this needs to be uh, driven by an important, what we call values-based family plan. Mm, um, I so, love that. Yeah, we've, we've created a, uh, a program called XYZ Families. And uh, what we do is we lead couples through this and we create values and we connect behavior to values. So we say, okay, this is, we believe in respect and kindness. We actually have four different categories that we use, right? We look at our respect and kindness. We look at personal growth. Uh, we look at professional growth. And then we just might look at what we call contributions to the family. And we get the whole family kind of grounded in this family uh, values-based family plan. We understand the differences, the strengths and weaknesses the neurodiversity offers. Um, And then the last piece, of course, is uh, communication. And then uh, we put it all together and we find that the effort that you put in up front, you know, pays off massive dividends, which even compound over the years. It's just absolutely incredibly important to do that work up front. So we have these programs that we put together based on some of those autistic features that I just mentioned, and that can really help with parenting.
0: Oh my gosh. I love that. A values-based family plan. I, I, I love it. I can imagine that that would reduce so much stress for the couples that are in their 20s and 30s and really trying to juggle everything. They're screaming at each other, they're screaming at the children, they're wondering why they're staying in this marriage and it's just stress and toxic for everybody. How, how long does it usually take for you and the other counselors that you, you have in your practice to put that together Um, with the family? Is that a few sessions? Does it take longer? What does that look like?
1: Great question. Yeah. Uh, So the benefit of having a hybrid system, Mm -hmm. uh, which is what we do at our practice. So we, you know, we work at Silicon Valley therapy and uh, what we do is we have about 13 providers and I've created a lot of these systems that all of our providers use. So Uh, and we work with people all around the world, you know, so we, we do therapy in the state of California and then we have some who are coaches. I've, I've, I've worked with people, uh, you know, in the United States, Canada, Europe, Asia. So wherever you are, we, we can help you. And we use this hybrid approach. What does hybrid mean? This means that you have a system that is thought out, that is designed specifically for neurodiverse couples and families where there's neurodiversity and that's going to accelerate your process because you're not starting from scratch mm. um, but it is hybrid in the sense that every family every couple is unique mm-hmm. um, so we want to take these templated systems that we've created and have worked for for you know hundreds of, of couples and families and we want to apply them to you we want to help you create the most efficient most effective plan for your family so it starts off with a, with a deep intake. So the first part is going to be an intake and really understanding your story. And okay. then a lot of times we'll start with a double session. So the second half of the session we'll actually introduce the plan right there. And then at the, right after that first double session, people are set up for what we call a social experiment. Mm. I, say, I say, "Okay, Mona, um, now that we've I've heard your story and um, here's here's our system, the XYZ system." And what we want you to do until we meet next is to do this social experiment, and then see what happens, right? See what changes in your life, and don't worry about if it's a massive failure or it's wonderfully great. Um, what we're what we're looking for is to help people learn. This is not about mm-hmm. blaming, right? This is about learning. So. This is the system we go through, and this hybrid model tends to move people along pretty good. So, by the end of the third or fourth session, they're seeing some pretty significant change in their family and their couple's life.
0: Wow. I love that because, you know, this is the challenge. And again, I wish I had the magic wand. You know, a lot of insurances, um, you know, pay for only a certain number of counseling sessions. And for some folks, who've been going through a lot of misunderstanding, resentment, anger, communication, failure, all that stuff. It's going to take a while for them to work through those things and figure out if they're going to be able to stay together as a couple, but insurance doesn't pay for coaching. So that's got to come out of pocket for folks. And so, you know, if they're going to be in coaching for an entire year, That could be a challenge for folks. So to hear that, you know, you do a double session up front, you do, and then you do the social experiment so that they can find out what is working right away. And then it sounds like they're going to come back and they're going to improve. They're going to test and improve kind of like, um, kind of quality management in the neurodiverse world. Right. I love it. I right. love it. I love it. I love it. I
1: love it. Right. But, yeah. Well, I will say there are codes for coaching. So so just so you know there, there, are, there
0: are there are. I did not know that.
1: Yeah, there are CPT codes and, and some insurance does cover it. Um I've I've seen some incredible um insurance plans where everything's covered, even out of network up to 80, 90 percent. So oh there which is wonderful but unfortunately it's not the norm it's maybe a, a silicon valley thing but um <laughs> okay yeah well
0: well it's nice to know that somebody's doing that because i think you know whether you're you're working with an experienced coach who understands neurodiverse couples relationships or a psychologist or a licensed marriage and family therapist whatever um, if you found the right person that can help you move forward and both thrive as individuals and in your relationship, it would be great if, if insurance would pay for it. So I did not know that there were um, insurances that are paying for coaching. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah. Maybe and for- we, you know, at our practice, we have a, a dedicated um, intake coordinator who can explain all this, can help you make sure you're maximizing your benefits and make sure that you're getting matched up with the provider at the price that works for you.
0: Fantastic. That's great, too. Well, I love this idea of the values-based family plan. And it sounds like it can be really beneficial to a lot of the folks that are out there that are struggling I know there's another area that I hear over and over again is a really big struggle for a lot of couples. And that has to do with employment. And there's two different kind of extremes. There's the one where the autistic partner is an expert in their field. They're working 12, 14 hours a day, maybe even on the weekend, always connected you know, electronically. And so when they come home, they're almost disconnected from their family, but they are absolutely able to keep their family financially well off. Then you've got the other extreme where the autistic partner has been struggling to either stay in a job because they keep getting fired, or they're struggling with meltdowns and burnout. And so they switch jobs before they get fired, or They've been under or unemployed for way too long. And I hear both of those stories over and over again. And so what is it that you would share with couples that are struggling with both of those employment issues? What are some of the strategies or techniques you might use or words of advice that you might share?
1: Sure, another very, very common topic we work with. Uh, we, we hear about situations where it's too much work or too little work and you know, job burnout, uh, career changes. Um, and we really cover the spectrum starting with uh, young adults usually. Uh, we, we have a, what we call a life momentum group. And this is for young adults who are struggling to get traction in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one area. And then, yeah, when you have a later in the life situation where there's couples who are struggling with career, job, either too little or too much uh, employment, the, the too much piece gets down, uh, you know, everything goes back to values, you know, it goes mm-hmm. back to values and what's more important. And we, we, have a, we have a lot of exercises and tools. So we have a, uh, an exercise where it's called My Priorities and values. And you have to list the top seven uh, values you have in priority and what they currently are and what ideally you would like to have. And we give examples and the, there's a whole worksheet around this. And then I have each couple fill it out and mm. then each person fill it out. And then when we come together and we look at the differences, it's incredibly enlightening. You know, of course, I've, I've had couples where they just do this one exercise and they're like, wow. Mm. I never knew this, right? I've known my partner for 20 years, and I had no idea <laughs> this was their values, right? Mm. That is your and and sometimes all the couples need to do is this one exercise, and I never see them again. They're like, we're uh, done. We we got it. We know exactly what's wrong now.
0: Love it. Yeah, love so, it. Where were you in 2017?
1: <laughs> w- well, <laughs> yeah, I wish I, I wish I couldn't help. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, it's yeah. This is going to be so helpful to so many of our listeners. Okay. So, so, um, if one of the partners, the autistic partner, says, I value work above family,
1: yeah, yeah, no, what happens then? That's a good one, Mona. And, and you know, that that comes up more than you might think, you know?
0: Oh, it came up in my marriage, yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> Sometimes I'll get uh, one partner in a couple who who just say, you know, my, my partner won't even show up to coaching or therapy. So I'm going to, and I say, great, you know, Mm -hmm. I I can, I can help people who show up. Right. Mm -hmm. So I will bring this topic up and and people will break down crying, you know, Mm. because they realize, you know, what's, what's going on. And then here's the other piece. This is kind of dipping into the communication piece. They always, they always say, well, I mean, you think about yourself. What if you went to your partner in 2017 and says, you know, I think you work too much. Um, We better we we have a problem. You know, that language probably would cause your partner to be defensive or avoidant.
0: Oh, it did. I said exactly that, Dr. Thomas.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah.
0: absolutely.
1: So I tell people, whoa, whoa, time out. Words matter. Mm -hmm. Okay. I believe that if you choose different words, you'll get a different answer.
0: Absolutely. Okay,
1: because we want to minimize defensiveness. We Mm -hmm. we don't want people to just, you know, fire back a missile because they they feel like they've been attacked. So I will coach people and I'll say, let's look at these nonviolent neutral words and how can we integrate them so you don't get a missile fired back at you, you get an answer right? Maybe it's not an answer you want, but it's it's an answer that clarifies values. And then from there, you can do something with that. I love it.
0: I love it. And, you know, everybody wants to feel like they're important in a relationship and what they're contributing is important. So I know I attacked my ex. I screamed. I was probably not the nicest person that he wanted to come home to. But, you know, we had been together for 29 years of marriage and we'd been together for 31 years before we found out we were neurodiverse. We were a neurodiverse couple. We always, almost always, had challenges with communication. But we worked on it because we loved each other. And I know there are a lot of couples that are out there still loving each other but really struggling with the communication piece. And I've talked to so many people on the podcast and so many people in the support groups. And one of the things that I keep hearing over and over again is that, you know, sometimes you're just going to need a third party to help you translate. So can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? Because When you're talking to somebody who's very rational and logical, and then somebody who's very emotional and like me, I was a screamer. I cried and I overloaded my ex. And then he would sit there either wondering what the heck I was talking about, you know, with the stare on his face, or he would maybe push back. So thoughts on ways in which... Through maybe the values-based family plan and talking about that, ways in which these couples who are struggling to communicate and really understand each other's perspective can improve in that area.
1: Before I answer that, Mona, I as I, th- I think I heard you say that this is a this is a topic you've covered in other other episodes. Um, what what have you? I mean, there's there's a number of ways to do this, but in your knowledge base since your uh, marriage and, and since you've been doing this podcast, you know, what, what types of things have you heard in terms of how to improve neurodiverse communication? Now, I'd be interested to hear that and then I can build on that.
0: Sure, absolutely. So the the one of the main things is to understand each other's perspectives and that both partners can be right at the same time and not to, um, it's important to be validated and to be heard and to, if you don't understand what your partner is saying, or you feel lost, to share that or to ask for clarity. The other thing that comes up over and over again, and I know I did this very, very wrong, you know, 10 different subjects in one conversation. So no person can really follow 10 different subjects. But then you, if you're with a partner who's autistic or neurodiverse, they may still be on the first topic and you're already on the 10th topic and there's no way they can keep up. So limiting to one topic at a time, going slow, taking time to talk about an issue when you're both fully available and understanding that you both can have different perspectives and both be right. And it's important to validate each other. Those are just a few things.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, those are good. Yeah. We, we, um, well, what you're describing is um, what we call the turtle and the hailstorm. Uh, mm, okay. Tell me you've more. you've ever heard that one. So, you know, the, uh, in your case, your, your partner would be the turtle and, and you're the hailstorm not getting your needs met because as, as you, I'm sure you've covered this in previous uh, episodes, but there's the concept of OTRS or Cassandra syndrome or mm-hmm. um, affect deprivation syndrome, right? So this is what we find in the neurotypical partner. And we have a group too. We have a group of neurotypical partner folks that we run. And so we can, they can commiserate and, and really um, share their struggles with these conditions. So they're labeled conditions, right? Um, so that's why there's the screaming and there's the 10 topics at the time, because it's death by a thousand cuts. You know, so. Yeah.
0: And, and if you could go a little bit more into that, because we really haven't talked a lot at all about Cassandra syndrome or affective deprivation disorder. We really haven't. And I know a lot of people are struggling with that. And anything that you can share on that topic would be really helpful.
1: Uh, sure, sure. Well, it, it really—I like the phrase "death by a thousand cuts," you know, because I it really that. is small trauma, right? That's that's what we're we're, we're dealing with here. Um, and the the Cassandra uh, metaphor or Cassandra syndrome, you know, this is a uh, a person whose warnings or concerns are are disbelieved by others, and it it originates from Greek mythology. Um, You know, Cassandra was uh, a daughter of uh, Priam, the the king of Troy, and then uh, Apollo provided her with the gift of of prophecy, but when Cassandra refused Apollo's romantic uh, advances, he he placed a curse, ensuring that nobody would believe her warnings. So Cassandra left with the knowledge of future events, but could neither uh, alter these events nor convince others. Of the validity, so we find that with the uh, neurotypical partner, right? Mm-hmm. So there, everybody on the outside says, "Wow, how your, your partner is so wonderful!" You know, they're they're great, but inside you're getting uh, beat up by these these constant uh, failures in what we call bids or emotional uh, reciprocities. You know, like right. you, you say, "Hey, it's a nice day outside," you get silence. Right. <laughs> Yes, Seems or like,
0: something negative,
1: or something negative. Yeah, or something negative. Yeah, don't <laughs> bother me. Yeah, so it's these little things, and that's why it's called um, ongoing traumatic relationship syndrome, right? So <laughs> ongoing, it's these little things over time, and then one reaches out, and then Cassandra uh, isn't isn't heard or believed. So you have to suffer in silence. Uh, so this this is tough, and then you have these eruptions that you're describing, right? Yep. You have these big eruptions where you talk about ten things at a time. You get screaming, and we're back to the turtle and hailstorm. So there is and there is a reasoning, and there is theory behind it. There is a story behind it, and it's very important that this this is one of the differences between going to a couple's counselor or coach who is specializing in neurodiversity, and one who's not, right? Mm -hmm. The one who's not, right, could actually make things worse. Yes. If you don't understand OTRS, affective deprivation, and how to work with that, you could start blaming the neurotypical person.
0: Oh, absolutely. We went to three therapists, and that's exactly what happened. And it was a lot of money wasted, to be honest with you. But we didn't know we were neurodiverse at the time. And if any one of those therapists had had expertise with neurodiverse couples, they would have absolutely seen what was going on. Because looking back, hindsight's 2020. Yeah. So, um, can you talk a little bit more about what you think are the differences for somebody that has expertise in working with neurodiverse couples? Versus someone who has never worked with a neurodiverse couple and has no knowledge of really neurodiversity.
1: Uh, You mean working, working with a, with a couple's counselor or coach that has no knowledge of neurodiversity?
0: Yeah. What would be, I guess, some of the things that um, I hear are, you know, it's, it's a little bit challenging to change therapists when you find out, like if somebody doesn't know they're neurodiverse and they're going to a couple's counselor and maybe it's somebody one of the partners feels comfortable with, but then they get the diagnosis. And I hear over and over again that during the pandemic, more and more people have gotten diagnosed that I'm working with in the support group because for the first time in their lives, the two partners are home or they had been home 24 7 together and so they started seeing things in their partner they hadn't seen before so they moved to go to counseling but the counselor did not have any experience with neurodiverse couples and like we talked about earlier may have done more harm than good what are the things that you see are different between somebody who has this ex- expertise and somebody who doesn't like the techniques they might use or strategies or well, what.
1: I, I think the biggest thing is, you know, first of all, it's, it's awareness, right? So mm-hmm. like your podcast is, is going to be so critical, right? It's, it's things like this where we can get the word out that there's actually a condition, you know, mm-hmm. where of neurodiversity and this concept really, uh, really arose in the 90s, it's not super old, you know, nope. it comes out of the, the autistic community and and I, I give presentations on how all that has come about, the history of it all, so it's not that old, so raising awareness, creating uh, knowledge that people can understand their situation, because there is is this a tendency to blame, right, mm-hmm. to, to blame your partner and you're the source of all my problems in life and I want you to make sure you're clear on that. Um, And in in many ways, the problem is not either partner, right? Mm -hmm. It's what we call it's a third. It's something outside of yourself. We want to objectify and externalize the problem. So that's where it starts with awareness. Um, If they're working with a counselor, and and believe me, I get a lot of referrals from couples counselors who say, you know, we just realized uh, they're they're on the spec. One partner's on the spectrum, and there's neurodiversity, and I don't have experience with that, and I want to make a referral. That's wonderful.
0: That's wonderful. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that, you know, and and this is very common, you know, in my, in my world of, of uh, psychological healthcare Um, we'll different providers will talk to each other. We'll sign releases. The clients will sign release of consents and we'll get you you the care that you need. Um, So I think that is an absolute option. Get a referral. Um, The other option is maybe just ask your, your, your counselor say, Hey, you know, is there a way where, you know, we could do an assessment or try to understand if there's some sort of, uh, spectrum behavior that's on board here, because it just feels like we're really stuck. Mm. And, and that's my last point is if you find yourself really stuck, not getting anywhere, not being listened to, not, you know, we're falling into this Cassandra problem again, you know, that could be a sign that, uh, we need to do something different, right? That's insanity, doing the same thing over and expecting different results. So realize that there might be other options out there, you know, with this awareness and just ask questions, you know, of your provider and, you know, don't be afraid. They're there to serve you. And if they're good at their trade and they're going to be able to respond and you know, they might just say, you know, hey, that's not my area of expertise. Let's do a referral or let's see what the options are. And that's completely fine.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I, I love that. And and I do think that the awareness that we're raising with the Neurodiverse Love podcast and the work that other organizations are doing around this topic is so important because there are folks that are really struggling They still have hope, they still love each other, and a therapist isn't helping because they don't recognize or understand neurodiversity, and they keep coming back in hopes that things will change, and they're actually getting worse. So that's really one of the main reasons I started the podcast, because I was not able or we were not able to find somebody that could help us, and our relationship ended in divorce. And again, if I had the magic wand and I could help folks and and divorce isn't a negative thing. If you two find that you have different priorities and different values uh, and that you'd be better off, you know, not with each other in a marriage or relationship, that's not a failure. But until you're able to do some of the things you're talking about as a couple, I think that perpetual resentment and anger and trauma just creates really an emotional hell and a lot of toxicity, in my opinion. Um, So I'm really, really glad that you have all these different techniques and that you've been doing this work in a place where there's a tremendous, tremendous need. And I'm really glad that you can do coaching in other areas of the world. So let's talk a little bit about, um, there's an issue that again, we haven't talked much about, but I know is a challenge for um, a lot of the couples that I've had the opportunity to meet and work with. And that is physical intimacy and sex in particular. And, you know, it could be so many issues. It could be sensory issues. It could be, um, you know, communication issues, what have you. But one of the things that makes me sad is that so many of the women that I talk to say, you know, we haven't had sex in months and months and months. And either it was good before we got married or before we had kids, or it was great and then we had kids and there's very little or, or any, you know, sexual or physical intimacy. I know that's one of the things that, that you also work on with couples. Can you address that issue a little bit and how, you know, you might advise couples who are struggling with that?
1: Uh, Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, it falls under the intimacy umbrella, right? Mm -hmm. So we have um, emotional intimacy and we have physical intimacy and really sex in and of itself um, is fundamentally relational. Mm -hmm. So um, I mean, you can, uh, Force it to uh, not be if there's a hyper arousal, but you know that gets harder over a, a multi-decade relationship. So there really has to be this deeper felt sense of closeness and connection for physical intimacy to thrive. Mm-hmm. So, so I would say you know that is the first uh, piece to consider here. You know, we say what is the most important sex organ? It's the brain. Right? Absolutely, it's the brain. <laughs> So, you know, how do you get people connected, uh, aroused, um, engaged in a way where physical intimacy is, is going to uh, happen? Um, you know, it really begins, what, what's that phrase? They say uh, what happens inside the bedroom is pretty much determined by what happens outside the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that's really going to be the first place you want to look. Um, if you really want deep, authentic uh, physical intimacy is to say, well, how are we doing in terms of emotional connection? Because if you feel close to someone and you have those uh, tender moments of connection, uh, the physical intimacy is going to be that much easier. Certainly you throw children in the mix uh, that adds another level of complexity, whether you're neurodiverse or not. Right. Um, But ultimately I believe getting back to where we started this question of priorities and values. And a lot of times I'll ask couples, you know, what's more important, your kids or your relationship?
0: Mm. And That's a tough one. That's a well, tough one.
1: <laughs> you know, research shows that uh, the right answer is your relationship. because sure. You are modeling that for your children. Right. You know? and, and, you know, how many, uh, many of your kids enjoy being lectured you know they're they're simply going to do what you do what do you model you know what Mm -hmm. type of energy is in the household Mm -hmm. Um, these are the things that's really going to make a huge difference so if you're ignoring that if you're not paying attention to these intimacy uh questions and these priorities then you know everyone suffers unfortunately and if you have this as a priority then you can say you know kids um, we need. We can't be with you tonight. Or you need to entertain yourself. Or we're going to get someone else to to help watch you. You know, you need to create space. You need to schedule some time to to be together as a couple. What do they say? Uh, quantity begets quality. You mm-hmm. know, that's another one, right? So mm-hmm. these are some of the things that you want to consider when you're looking at physical intimacy. I think, and, and you can certainly dive specifically into the sexual experience. But before I go there, I, I look at, you know, the context, you know, and what's going on in the relationship. Are you scheduling time? I mean, romance and, and sex, it's it's not magic, right? You, you need to build in some intentionality to it, right? Right along with values-based families and couples, very high on my list is intentionality, right? Are we intentional? Do we want a physically intimate relationship, emotionally intimate relationship? What's that going to take, Right. I can give you all kinds of nifty strategies. There's tons of self-help books on sex and, you know, buy this candle, do this position. Whatever. <laughs> um, but if you don't have these big picture values in place, it, it's going to go by very quickly and it's not going to
0: last. It's not going to be sustainable. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. So if there's tremendous challenges in communication, there's autistic burnout, there's meltdowns, there's what do you call it? The hail storm. I love that. Right. Um, the, the death by a thousand cuts, you know, if that's what's happening day in and day out in the relationship, of course, it's going to be hard to have really good physical intimacy and a sexual connection. So, um, I think we've talked about so many great issues. Uh, I would really love it if there is a topic we haven't talked about that you find that is recurring with a lot of the couples that you work with. If we could talk about that, is there something that that you have seen over and over again?
1: Oh, sure. So we, we have a multi-phase process, you know, Mm -hmm. that we work uh, couples through. Um, We call it our uh, relationship renewal program, right? I love that. Yeah, it, it involves uh, seven seven phases, seven steps, right? Um, and we'll we'll just you can get a sense of our hybrid approach here at, at Silicon Valley Therapy, um, where we we have these these models that we plug people into, but like I said, we take everybody's unique story and make sure that's part of uh, our work. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually, what happens is we get, the biggest challenge is certain issues will come up. Um, and they could be behavior patterns, like one person's messy, one person's not. And then they just really struggle with effective communication to resolving these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually it's driven by past wounds, right? So absolutely, you try to talk about, you know, hey, how come you're uh, not cleaning up your clothes off the living room couch? Um, if you just talk about that to someone you just met, you yeah, you probably get through that. Okay. You know, there's mm-hmm. no history. Right. No history. But, you know, with the couples we work with, the longer the history, the tougher that conversation is going to be. Mm-hmm. Right? So p- reconciling the past and, and, you're seeing a theme here, we have a five step model for reconciling, right? So okay. we have all these systems, we plug people in based on their needs. And I think that is one of the biggest uh, challenges, You know, I guess that we haven't mentioned today yet that we help people address. Um, and is why a lot of counseling or, or relationships that aren't really guided properly will, will fail because you can't ignore the fact that everybody comes with a history with a story, and that gets embedded in people's emotional brain. So they're going to approach their partner with a certain, what we call, mental schema. All they have to do is walk in the room, right? Yeah. And they'll instantly <laughs> get triggered. You know, we have yeah. an associative memory, and then, you know, they're ready to fight or do whatever they're going to do based on that history. Right. So that really needs to be addressed. And that can be addressed, you know, through many ways from, from, and it might be even trauma treatment, it might be, uh, cognitive therapy, you know, it might be uh, what we call parts work. You know, there's a lot of ways that we can address it, but in the end, there's got to be this uh, reconciliation uh, effort that helps people deal with these history of triggers.
0: I love it. And it's so important because Dr. Thomas, um, you know, I know there are triggers from my dad who passed away in 2005 that my sister and I we both know now he was on the, on the autism spectrum. Hmm. Um, he was a psychologist. Okay. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think one of the reasons he was a psychologist in private practice is because he burned so many bridges in every single job he had that he needed to be his own boss. But, you know, that that's an interesting thing that my sister and I've talked about. But, you know, there were certain things that we saw he didn't do or he did do and they continued to trigger both of us in our relationships with our ex-husbands and boyfriends and all of that and until we worked on healing those things individually we kept bringing them into every relationship so you know that is really 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 important for any relationship but I think for a neurodiverse relationship to get beyond those misunderstandings, the resentment, the trauma, that is going to be so so critical. And you can do that both in therapy and in your coaching practice.
1: Yeah, good question. Um, there are limits to coaching in terms of uh, it's generally forward-looking, um, mm-hmm. but inevitably there are there are uh, you, you have to talk about the past to some extent, no matter what domain you're in. Um, So it really depends. I mean, in coaching, we're not able to uh, diagnose and and treat depression, for example. That's not going to work. Um, If it's deep trauma that needs uh, attention and therapy, we're not going to be able to do that. But if if somebody comes and says, you know, hey, uh, remember when, um, you know, uh, uh, you threw away, you know, my favorite golf club or something, (laughs) right? Uh, this still to this day, you know, just drives me nuts, right? Right, right. We we can work with, you know, things like that, right? We can work with issues that people present and we say, this has got to be reconciled. So, and if there's a need for that deeper therapeutic work that we can't do in coaching, we're happy to work with, you know, a local therapist and and continue as needed.
0: Wonderful. 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 Well, I think that you have provided our listeners with so many gems that um, I wouldn't be surprised if you have a lot of people reaching out to you because so many of the things that you've talked about, we haven't talked about in the way that we've discussed tonight. And I think you've made a lot of these issues understandable. And I think, You're going to help our listeners realize that there is a lot of hope, even if you are struggling literally every day with constant miscommunication and misunderstanding. And that's really important because I will tell you so many people that I talk to who are on the verge of losing hope, and I just want them to connect with the right person who can help them move forward. So I want to ask you one more thing before we go, because this is something that um, I do hear periodically when one partner, and it's usually the neurotypical is working on making changes and the autistic partner either just got diagnosed is in the process of got, of getting diagnosed or they got diagnosed, but they're really struggling to accept the diagnosis Or even their partner has said, I think you might be autistic. Um, Would you go to a counselor with me? What do you think about the neurotypical partner who can't get their autistic partner to join them? Do you feel like it's still beneficial for them to come for counseling to learn different techniques. They wouldn't be able to necessarily do the uh, values-based family plan uh, with their partner, but do you feel it's beneficial for them to come and see somebody who understands neurodiversity?
1: Uh, yeah, like I said earlier, 100% yes. I, we can help people who show up and, and whether okay. that's the individual in a, in a relationship where your partner won't come or it's the couple themselves, and, as I said earlier, words matter because if somebody shows up individually and their partner's not willing to come, we can dive into that. We can say, well, what what have you done to invite your partner? right? Yeah. Um, how has this played out in the past? and And we're going to look at that. Because uh, you know Marshall Rosenberger wrote that wonderful book on nonviolent communication, and he he provides a four-step model. Everything is like a step model, right? Right. (laughs) Um, But will you know you don't have the clients don't have to worry about that. The important thing is get an outside person involved, right? Because you are too deep in the mud, right, to be able to see clearly, to be able to make effective uh, actions, to communicate well. I mean. I can't do it in my personal life. I need someone with an objective viewpoint. And absolutely, I've seen so many people come in as individuals and say, hey, my partner won't come. And I say, "Okay, let's let's dive into that. Let's learn from that. Right. Let's learn from that. Why and what have you tried? And then we'll give social experiments to individuals.
0: I love it. And I love the idea of a social experiment because failure just means you rule out that particular activity or whatever you did when you went home and you just move on to something better. I love that. I love that. It's like participatory research and, and exactly. uh, humans I love are,
1: that. Humans are too complex for everybody <laughs> just to do just the same thing all the time. And we don't presume that, you know, we're going to be able to tell you exactly what's going to work. Right. Exactly. So we, we say, you know, this is about learning. It's not about blaming. And we want, most people have goodwill, you know, right unless there's a severe personality disorder, you know, most people have goodwill at their core and we want to leverage that. We want to tap into that. We want to honor the care, the goodwill that you have for your partner, even though you've been through decades of trauma, because there's no point in in any other path. It just gets hostile and it ends up in in a very bad place. We want to have graceful movement forward.
0: Mm, I love that. That's a great way for us to end this episode. And I want you to share how can our listeners get in touch with you and the other therapists at your practice? What is the best way for them to reach out to you?
1: Our website, yep, siliconvalleytherapy.co. Okay. Yeah, CO. And I, I also have a personal website, thomaslucking.com. So either either one of those SiliconValleyTherapy.co, not not com, but co, or ThomasLucking.com uh, can reach out. We'd love to help you. We have a wonderful team that uses all of the tools I've mentioned here today. You know, we we will help people at any you know in any financial situation. That's our mission.
0: Oh, I love that. I am so glad that I found you. Your contact information will go in the show notes. It will also go on the neurodiverselove.com website um, in addition to a link to this episode. Thank you, Dr. Thomas, for the amazing work that you're doing throughout the world. We We need to spread your systems. We need to spread the work you're doing. So that in every state and in every, you know, major county in every state, we have folks that are really understanding what the differences are for neurodiverse couples and what their needs are so they aren't struggling and can heal as individuals and as a couple. Thank you so, so much for joining us on the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. Is there any last thing that you want to share as we head out?
1: Well, thank you, Mona, I I really appreciate this. And and really, I think the main thing is, is ask questions. Mm -hmm. I always tell people, I say, the quality of your questions correlates with the quality of your life. Mm -hmm. So asking the right questions will put you 99% of the way to the answer. And if you can't get those right questions yourself, get some help, get some objectivity, course
0: we're happy to help, but those questions are critical. Thank you so much. Wonderful. And and I think we we oftentimes are afraid to ask questions because we don't necessarily want to know the answers, but if we don't ask questions. I don't think it is possible for us, again, to heal and grow and begin to understand our partners in a way that's going to help us both feel validated and safe and secure in our relationship. Again, thank you so much. And listeners, um, I hope that you will reach out to Dr. Thomas and his team if you feel like they can be of assistance. Thank you again for sharing your knowledge and your expertise and for all the work that you're doing, Dr. Thomas. I really appreciate it.
1: You're welcome, Mona. Real pleasure. Thank you for all your good work on the podcast. It was great to be with you today.
0: All righty. You take care. Bye-bye. You too.
1: Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye.